Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Season 2 of the Medal of Honor Podcast with your host, Tiffany Martzchink, U.S. Armed Service Veteran. Tiffany is originally from Charleston, South Carolina and retired after over 24 years of service in the United States Army on both active duty and in the Army Reserves. This week's guest on the Medal of Honor podcast is John McCaskill Navy SEAL Commander, retired. John McCaskill was born in South Africa and moved with his parents and four siblings to the United States when he was seven. He grew up in Ruston, Louisiana where he was an avid track and cross-country runner. After graduating high school, he served briefly as an enlisted sailor in the Navy before receiving an appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Mathematics from the U.S. Naval Academy and Master of Science degree in Operations Research from the Naval Postgraduate School. John McCaskill, retired Navy SEAL Commander, served in multiple highly dynamic leadership positions during his 24-year military career in the U.S. Navy from the battlefield to the operations center and the boardroom. John has served in Iraq, Afghanistan, off the coast of Somalia, and in Panama. He also runs a consulting business that brings mindfulness and meditation to high-performing teams to aid in dealing with stress, anxiety, and depression, all while increasing focus, creativity, and productivity. After retiring, he served as the deputy executive director and podcast host, and producer for Veterans Path a non-profit organization that works to introduce meditation and mindfulness to veterans to bring them a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. He now does keynote speaking engagements on developing leadership, grit, and resilience at the individual and organizational levels. He also owns his own mindfulness consulting company, McCaskill Consulting, LLC, bringing mindfulness and meditation to high-performing teams to aid in dealing with stress, anxiety, and depression all while increasing focus, creativity, and productivity. John's wife, Becca, also served in the Navy and is now a civilian orthopedic physician assistant. Together, they are the proud parents of three small children, and recently after an adventurous six months as a family in an RV, they have settled in Colorado Springs. I was born in, in Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, I've got three older sisters and a younger brother, and my parents, they were born and raised there too in South Africa, and they go back several generations on, on both sides. And South Africa in the uh, early and, and mid-80s, they were still practicing apartheid, and uh, my parents didn't agree with that, so they uh, uprooted us. Uh, uh, well, another reason they uprooted us was they didn't agree with the drafts in South Africa at the time. Young men, uh, when they graduated high school, they were automatically drafted into the South African military. So they uprooted us for two reasons, the apartheid and the, the draft. Brought us over to the States. And the, the joke with my dad now is that they, they pulled me out of South Africa so I wouldn't have to be in the military. And I came over here and volunteered to be in the U.S. military. But um, I grew up in a small town of Ruston, Louisiana. I mean, it's, it's I guess, a medium-sized town. It's, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 people, something like that. Uh, it's right there in the north central part of Louisiana, right off Interstate 20. If you know where Louisiana Tech University is or Bossier, Shreveport, uh, it's about an hour east of, of Shreveport. Um, grew up there. 
found that, uh, you know, I, I had a deep part of service in my family, a deep part of service in my school, a deep part of service in my community, and realized that I wanted to serve in the military when I graduated from high school. I was also part of a small, tight-knit running team, both track and cross country, and, and we did absolutely everything together. We were like, uh, you know, pigs, thieves, just always doing everything together. And I wanted to be part of a small, tight-knit group once I did into the military and a small, tight-knit group doing elite things. So I realized that that was going to be in the special operations community, uh, whatever branch that was in. I, I wasn't sure at the time, but I knew I wanted to be in the special operations world. And then it must have been late my sophomore or early my junior year in high school, I, uh, I I started really thinking about which service I wanted to go into. One of my friends had started to uh, lean towards the Navy, and and then I had always spent the summer vacations on the Gulf Coast, spent time in the water. I loved the ocean, loved the beach, and uh, I was like, okay, well, I want to I want to join the Navy then, and whatever special operations branch was in the Navy, that's what I want to do. So I. I decided then that I wanted to be a SEAL. I just wasn't sure how I was going to get to that end goal. And uh, ended up enlisting out of high school. Uh, I applied to get into the Naval Academy out of high school and got turned down. I received some nominations, my, my congressional nominations, but did not receive an appointment. Um, so I was like, you know what? I, I still want to be in the Navy, so I'm going to enlist. Enlisted in the Navy, served a year and then got picked up by the enlisted ranks to go to the Naval Academy where uh, I studied mathematics, um, not because I absolutely love math, but just because I'm good at it. Uh, so I, I was <laughs> kind of pigeonholed into that. Um, ended up graduating in 2001 and went out to uh, SEAL training out in Coronado, California, did my, my time out there, and, uh, and then was pinned as, a, as an official SEAL with my Trident in, in uh, 2003, February 2003. Um, after that, reported to my first team, SDV Team 2, SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 2, and did my, my stints there, and bebopped around the, the different SEAL teams and the different special operations communities for the next 17 years after that. So I ended up being in the military in some form or fashion for 24 total years, uh, 17 or so that was with the SEAL teams for attached to special operations in some, uh, some capacity. And, uh, and now I am out here in Colorado Springs with my beautiful bride and my two young kids, and I'm teaching mindfulness and meditation. So uh, definitely, uh, that's normally something we always want to unpack. People want to know how you get from being a SEAL into teaching mindfulness and meditation. So here I am. I don't know that you're necessarily born with it. I think you can have it built. Um, I would say that, that the the one thing that we all have in common at, at the end of us is some level of grit. Uh, so grit, stick to itness, perseverance, whatever you want to call it. That that we all, those who are standing there at the end, have a a higher level of grit or perseverance than I guess the average Joe. That said, I. I 
don't know that you're necessarily born with that higher level of grit. I think um, a lot of it is built through trials, through adversity, through participating in things intentionally that are uncomfortable, like track and cross country. That that's not you know that's not an easy sport. Looking back on it uh, now, I now I go running for a couple of miles. And I'm like exhausted, and uh, and I think about the miles that I used to run when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And uh, I know that it was tough. Granted, I was running on younger legs and <laughs> weighed weighed about eighty pounds less than I do now. But still, it was it was it was tough. And uh, you know, tough on the lungs, tough on the mind, tough on the spirit. And I think a lot of people who put themselves into intentionally uncomfortable situations, whether it's through sports, whether it's through academics, they put themselves into something that they have to set a goal. And then work their butt off to achieve that goal. You're going to end up, once you do that, developing grit. And uh, I think that those who come into training, they probably have a higher level of grit than the average Joe anyway. Um, but not everyone has the level of grit that it's going to take to get through the training. And that's, uh, I think that's the distinguishing factor. They've done all sorts of studies about, hey, is it, is it swimmers? Is it runners? Is it hockey players? Is it water polo players? You know, and quite honestly, they, they haven't identified one single um, sport or one single academic pursuit or one single type of person besides grit that uh, will, will get somebody through that type of training. It's the same with just about any type of military training. You, you look back on some of the, uh, you know, the trials that we've all gone through. I guarantee you that we all have in the military, and no no offense against those who are listening who aren't military, there's plenty of people who are not military that have a high level of grit. But I would say that um, the average grit scale or grit level of a military service member is going to be higher than that of, of the, the average on the outside. So. What happens is you go, you ring, you stand on these two frog feet that are there <laughs> painted on the on the concrete. You stand on those, you ring the bell three times, then you take your helmet off and you put it down on the ground. And once you do that, there's no coming back. There's no turning around. Um, you have you have dropped on request, you know, or quit. And when people do that, there's I mean I, I had friends quit, um, good friends quit who I'm still friends with to this day. But I had to continue with training, right? I couldn't spend my time talking to those, consoling them. You know, I'm, I'm continuing with my training, which is basically every waking hour when you're in, in BUDS. BUDS is basic underwater demolition seal training. That's, that's the name of the training. As you're going through that, you, you don't really have time to stop and talk to those who have rung the bell. A lot of the time, you don't even know they have from the bell because you might be out on a boat or you're running around with a log or running through the obstacle course, and you will just hear the bell ring, and you don't even know which class that quitter comes from. And you look around, and just gradually, the class is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Nonstop physical training, mental training, uh, with no sleep or very limited sleep. You end up getting about three hours Wednesday night 
uh, starts Sunday night and by Wednesday night, you get about three hours of sleep. You start that Sunday night with a class of like a hundred something. And by Wednesday morning, you look around and you've got 30 something and you're, you don't even know where everybody went. And definitely during hell week, you don't have any time to stop and talk to the quitters or those who, who left. But I also got to tell you, like, there's no, in my mind, I mean, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not necessarily joined by everybody in this thought, but in my mind, those who come out and try to be a SEAL are at least, they're at least trying. They've got this vision in their mind of what they want to do, and they're giving it a shot. And we were talking about failure or mistakes before. Uh, uh, you know, I think starting training to be a seal and then not finishing it's that that old proverbial man in the arena right the theodore roosevelt hey at least you you gave yourself gave yourself a shot you took a chance on your on yourself by putting yourself into the arena and those who kind of throw rocks or critique those who went to buds and didn't make it a lot of the time i'm like hey did have you ever tried something hard have you ever quit and uh, most of the time, the answer is either no, I haven't tried something hard, or I've quit before. And if either one of those are true, then you don't have room to throw rocks. And, and honestly, either side, I mean, even those who do try training and make it through like myself, hey, I don't know what's going on in those, those other people's minds. I don't know what's going on in those other people's lives. So I still don't have room to throw rocks at those who, those who quit and ring out. I, I applaud them for making an effort to serve in a special operations community and, and serve at the tip of the spear. So I, I think the kind of pinnacle of my career as far as that is concerned, as far as something that really affected me, really changed my mindset, changed my perception of the world, um, was was Operation Red Wings in Afghanistan in, in 2005, which you know, many people have read about or seen the movie with, with Marcus Luttrell and the Lone Survivor story. Um, <clears throat> that operation, I was, I was working in the Operations Center, uh, so the Joint Operations Center, the JOC, or the Actually, that one was called a top. Um, and when the, the uh, surveillance and reconnaissance team was compromised by some goat herders, there was a decision to be made on the battlefield. They decided to let those goat herders loose. Those goat herders went and told a nearby village what had happened and, and that they had run into U.S. soldiers, quote-unquote, in the mountains. And uh, then the, the Taliban ended up going up into the mountains and giant firefight ensued. Three of the four guys on the ground were killed. Mike Murphy was killed and received a Medal of Honor for calling in for quick reaction force. That quick reaction force was made up of several helicopters, CH-47s, uh, and the, one of the CH-47s was shot down by an RPG as, as it was starting to level out to to let the guys fast rope down to the ground to, to be that quick reaction force. 
So we ended up uh, losing 11 SEALs that day and eight Army Night Stalkers. So a total of 19 souls lost that day. And that, that operation caused me a lot of survivor guilt. Um, I knew all those guys. I knew some of their, you know, kids. I knew some of their wives, uh, you know, friends, brothers, everything. I, I knew them. And I flew home on, on a escort with Mike Murphy, his body, and Danny Dietz, who was also killed on the ground as part of that surveillance and reconnaissance mission. I flew back with them, um, landed in Delaware, got them connected, got uh, Murph and, and his family was there, his parents were there, um, turned over the body to those who received bodies in Delaware. Um, and then I jumped in a rental car and I took the American flag that had been on Danny's body bag when he'd been recovered from the field. And I drove that flag back to his now widow and sat with her for a couple hours and, you know, told her what I had seen and heard and what I knew had happened at the time. It was fairly limited, but, you know, I told her what I knew. And then I gave her the flag. And then I went home to my, my then wife, uh, since divorced, remarried, but uh, I went, went home to her and I acted like nothing had happened. Like no, like no big deal and that I was still the same person and, you know, that everybody that I was with was the same and that we were just these hard, battle-hardened people who had no emotions. And I started planning for my next, my next platoon, my next workout, my next deployment. And didn't ever process what had happened, really. So that's where the survivor guilt, you know, it, it was there, but I, I pushed it down and boxed it up. It's like, hey, I'll deal with that later or I'll never deal with it. And it came back uh, with a vengeance uh, several years later and caused uh, some stress and some anxiety in my life, caused some very deep depression, um, depression that caused some really dark thoughts uh, about whether or not I should be here on the planet, whether or not I deserved to be here when some of the, the men that we had lost on that operation were some of the best men that I, that I ever knew. And, and then, uh, started taking medication to address that. And the, the medication helped to a point, but it really just, uh, the numbed, it numbed the pain, but it also numbed the, any kind of enjoyment that I got out of life. So I was just kind of going through life as a robot, kind of a, a shell of who I had been. And, uh, and then I got introduced to a counselor who recommended that I, that I practice or try mindfulness meditation. And uh, I did. And, and you know, about eight weeks, two months or so after I started practicing, I started to feel better. I came off the medication. Um, some of the pain came back, but I, now I was able to process it in a more healthy way rather than the destructive ways that I had been doing. And I, I attribute meditation to saving my life and not only saving my life, but making my life better. I, I feel like I am, you know, mentally, I, I feel like I'm the kid back in high school. Physically, that's a whole different matter, but <laughs> mentally, I, I still feel pretty good. So, yeah, I didn't 
I don't think I ever went so far as to have a, a plan in place to end my life, but I, I had definitely thought about the fact that I didn't, I didn't belong here, that kind of thing. Um, the, just that in and of itself was scary enough for me to, to seek help. Um, and I didn't seek help by, by talking to friends, which I very well could, could have and probably should have. But I felt, uh, I felt a little bit of shame there, quite honestly. Um, one, in the fact that I was feeling any kind of guilt at all. And then two, that I was having these thoughts. Um, so that I think that kept me from speaking to my friends. But I went and spoke to, to counselors about it and... Um, I think, I think I'd, I'd been seeing counselors for a while, but I never mentioned exactly where I, where I was. And then I, then I spoke to one counselor about the fact that I was really starting to have these deep thoughts or dark thoughts rather. And, um, and then he eventually introduced me to the mindfulness meditation. In, in all honesty, I think, I think the medication did not help. I think the medication, it helped with the pain, but it also like, it numbed, like I mentioned before, it numbed that joy. So in in a way, I think it made those dark thoughts even more acute. And uh, and that's luckily, you know, one, I met that counselor. Two, he recommended mindfulness meditation, not medication. And I was able to come off of the medication. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a confluence of events that helped me to kind of come out of this dark place that I was. Yeah, I, um, so on that note, I gotta say that, um, with the mental health medications that I've been on, it's not that similarly in a sense that I felt like I had to, like, talk to them. And I got to a point for me where I was, um, close by, I had my medications sitting on, on the nightstand saying, you know, I probably should just go ahead and those the knees. Mm. Um, I don't want to die, but I I don't have anywhere to go to. I don't have anybody to talk to. I can't do this anymore. Um, and I realized that that thought process was not accurate because my thought process was if I can just take enough of these to go to sleep and not wake up until my problems are gone, there's no logic in that. Yeah. And I realized yeah. how illogical that thought process was. Um, I went to the VA and to the emergency room and saw a self admitted cycle. Um, and for no other reason but to you know, protect myself from myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that was one of the most difficult things for me, but it was also one of the best things that I did because um, I, I had to be willing to to say, okay, uh, and all, I didn't know anything about psych ward. And so, kind of like what people know about the military based only on TV is kind of what my thought was, and I just thought, what am I getting myself into? It's really worth But it was nothing like, um, it was nothing like that. So, but it was great, and um, it was great because, you know, one of the nurses, and I was there for 24 hours, and that was it. But, that that's what I needed. And it were, and one of the nurses, the very nurse that checked me in is the same nurse that was checking me out. 
and she was in tears, and she said, Daddy, you were the best patient we've ever had. And you know, wow. I'm like, why? And she goes, she's like, because you are here to take care of yourself, and you were just very compliant, and once, you know, everything that we said or asked, you did, and there were just no complaints, and you always had a smile on your face. But, you know, the thing with that, that I think along the lines of kind of what touching on is, for me, I think I spent so much time being good at saving face and having mm-hmm. a smile on and not having anybody to talk to, but because I had this smile on my face, nobody knew what was going on on the inside. Sure. And I didn't sure. know those people to, to connect with. So for people who might be listening to this, like, how do you do that? Like, how, when you know you're hurting, but you just feel like you're alone and you're mm-hmm. by yourself and you don't have anybody... You don't want to just go to some stranger and be like, hey, I need somebody to talk to you. Like, how do you, right. how do, you do that? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I think I'm probably not the one to answer that question. Being that I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't do a great job at doing that. Yeah. But I think now being on the other side, as as uh, somebody who's been there myself, what I what I would like to encourage people to do is is make themselves open as resources. Make it known that you're you're a shoulder to cry on, right? A lot of the time, what we do in the military is we put on these false bravado acts, uh, kind of our false armor, and we act like we're too tough to have any type of human emotions or feelings. But we're not. We're human beings, and if we make it known to our our fellow brothers and sisters in arms that we are there as a listening ear. We are there to support one another. Then I think it's going to be easier for those who are hurting to share the pain that they're experiencing, the pain that they're going through. Um, but as far as sharing that with, uh, I think I think what you can do is identify early on before you get into a dark place who your true friends are who your support network is and then and then set yourself up for success have a have a foundation of support there so like right now in in my phone i have the i have the national suicide hotline in my phone i don't know i'm i'm assuming that i will never get to that place again because of the tools and techniques that i have in place that I practice, I also have, you know, I've, I've personally got too much to live for. I've got my beautiful wife, my kids, uh, and I've just personally, that's just where I'm at in my mind is I have too much to live for. But I have that number in my phone just in case I ever did get to that place again. And I also have that number in my phone so that I can share it with anyone. That way, you know, they don't have to Google the number it's, it's 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK is the National Suicide Hotline. And I think having that on quick dial for yourself and to share with others in case you ever get a friend who calls you and they're like, hey, I need help, and you're not equipped to help, then you can put them towards a resource, push them towards a resource that can help. But also, I think, um, as, as someone who is it again a human being you know that there are vulnerabilities but if you set yourself up 
with that support network, you know who your trusted friends are. Um, you know the National Suicide Hotline. You know the different um, resources that are out there. You know all that when you're in a good state of mind so that if you do go down that dark path again, then you can reach out and grab one of those lifelines. I think that's what I would recommend. So from both ends, one, from the person potentially going through that, and then two, from the person, the people who could support others is make yourself known as a resource. And you know, I think a word that a lot of people are using now um, for that is your tribe, establishing that tribe. That's right. That have. Yep. So um, every, every person is different. So what it looks like for you may not look the same for me um, and everybody else. But how do you establish that tribe? You know, if I'm starting from scratch, like I'm, I'm out in the military, I move to wherever I move to, and my ties are kind of cut. Um, right. I had, uh, you know, I had a wife then, uh, my, my previous wife then. I had 
good job. I had good friends. I good. My, my, I've got three older sisters and a younger brother and parents that I adore. I had plenty to live for. Um, but I didn't see it because basically the, the, the blinders were on. So I think that's another thing is you have to look for that network. You have to look for that tribe, right? As you, as you get out, you have to actively do that. And then whether you're in the service still or out, if you're starting to have dark thoughts, try to, and I mean, this is, this is definitely easier said than done. Definitely. And I mean, I know because I've been there, but try to kind of open up the aperture. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing all this video, like as those people can see me right now. I mean, you're, you're the only one who can see me, but, uh, <laughs> but basically the, for, for the, those of who are listening, I'm, I'm doing like, I'm putting up blinders to my face and with my hands. And as you are having those dark thoughts, you need to peel those blinders back and see one, what you have to live for. And then two, who is there to support you? Who is there to support you? Who and what? I mean, there's organizations that are out there. There's the national suicide hotline. There's your friends, your family, your, your church, your gym, whoever. Um, so I think that just peeling those blinders back some, you can see that there's a lot to live for and a lot of support out there. You know, with that, I gotta tell you, there's that. So I'm, I'm 46. I was in the military for 24 years. And I, I think for me, it, it's been two years since I've gotten out, but I feel like I'm a 20 year old because of those things. Not kind of like what you said. I'm, I'm not physically, not physically by any means. I'm not like a 20 year old, but I think the thing that makes me feel like a 20 year old is that I feel like it's just like, I just left home. Now what? Because I'm having to figure out who I am and what I'm about mm-hmm. at age 46. Uh, because I grew, I, I left home and went into the army. So, uh, it's like I'm having to start over again. And so I think, that's one of the things that makes that military transition difficult. Whether you've been in for three years or 30, you said you dedicated that time period where your sole mission in life was whatever your mission was in the military. Right, right. And, and, and especially when you're younger, in your early 20s, coming into the military. So, and, and when you have, you have significant traumatic events, I was trying to go SCLI, <laughs> but, like, uh-huh. but uh, when you have those significant events that happen in the military on top of that being your way of life for X amount of years, that's a lot to grapple with. Uh, so was there something that um, helped you with that piece? And it may still go right back to that mindfulness and meditation. How did you figure out who John McCaskill was instead of Navy SEAL commander. Yeah. Well, I think, um, a couple of things. One is, uh, yes, the, the mindfulness meditation absolutely helped in, in taking some time, taking a step back from the uniform and taking a look inside to who I am. Uh, I think that that helped, but I, I also went through several programs, um, that had, um, aspects of their course where you take a long, hard look at who you are and what it is you want to do on the outside. So I went through a a foundation called the Commit Foundation. They have a program called Pursue Your Purpose. 
And in Pursue Your Purpose, you read a book and you do the activities called, the book is called Designing Your Life. It's got an associated workbook. And uh, I, I did a lot of the work that was in that. And I think that helped me to unpack who I was outside of uniform. And then, um, and then I went through the Honor Foundation and, uh, and did, in, within the Honor Foundation, you do Simon Sinek's Find Your Why activity. And I think that helped me a lot to, uh, again, identify who I was outside of uniform. Um, and then, and then lastly, just, just talking with people who had been out of uniform for a while themselves or who had never put on a uniform, just sitting down and, and kind of picking their brains. Not, and not sitting there and asking them questions about, hey, what's it like in the civilian world? But just ha just having a, a human conversation that has very little to do with the fact that I'm in the military. It's just, hey, I'm John, you're Tiffany. Hey, we're having this conversation. It has, uh, you know, and it's just about the coffee we're drinking or it's about some adventures we've been on or it's about some, some travel or whatever. And it just opens your eyes to the, the, the fact that there is so much more to life than, than just the identity you become when you, when you wear the uniform. Um, so I think that's that, yeah, the, the mindfulness meditation helped a lot. I did some deep introspective and uncomfortable work through that. Um, the counseling helped a lot. Um, but I think all of it together really helped counseling, mindfulness, meditation, and then these transition programs that help me do pursue your purpose, find your why, those things that uh, I think help me to identify who John McCaskill is and not Commander McCaskill. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm actually doing that program right now with the Committee Foundation. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. So I've had, I, I got the book, I'm reading the book, doing the activities, uh, and I thought, great, I'm going to read a book. And I am, but I'm not just having to read a book. There's stuff I have to do. And I'm like, dang yeah. it, go on. <laughs> so it's good work. Of, I mean, there's there's a reason is. for it. It's yeah. really good. And I'll tell you where I am with that right now is that I'm at the part where, um, like, knowing what your values are. Yep. Um, and I was like, what the heck? The Army values, those are my values. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm looking at it, and like, it doesn't quite work like that. But I like that because it really is. I mean, I think I, I like the fact that it's making you know it's making me question what's my why behind my what you know what's yeah. what's, what's why do I want to do this as a career why do I want to do that um, and I think that's really important I think we neglect that like you say okay the Army's seven the seven Army values are my values why well because I'm in the Army and they're the Army values therefore they're mine <laughs> um, I mean but that <laughs> but now. I'm not in the army. Um, I'm not in the military, so I have to, you know, figure out what is what are my values and why are they my values. Now, how can I go out and implement those values in whatever it is that I you know, do for the rest of my life? Right, so right. It, it really is good. It really is important. Um, and I think, like any good thing, um, it takes work, and I have to actually participate in it instead of just read a book. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, yep. Yeah. Fine times. Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, it is. It's good. It's, it's worth it. Good. It's worth it. it. 
And that's and that's what I do like about it. I like about, I like the fact that it's forcing me to be introspective and look at myself and, and question myself. Like, why do I believe this? You know, right. even, you know and even uh, being, you know, I, I would consider myself somebody of faith, but I was even questioning that. Um, not in a not in a condemning way, but just questioning. Sure. Why do I believe this as my faith? I think that's a good thing, to, a good question to ask, yeah. whatever faith you're in. Yes. I think that's a good question to have. Yeah. You know, not, not just because I think what happens a lot of times is, well, I believe this because my parents believe this because their parents believe this. Right. Um, but, you know, that's a whole other ball of wax. So, <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's good stuff. So now, if you, what, what are you up to? What are you doing nowadays? Um, now, you know, you've, you've had to go through a lot of, um, you know, treatment therapy, and I don't say treatment or therapy as a, like, institutionalized type thing, but, um, you've had to go through, um, a lot of, uh, self-care and peer from, from, through other people, um, to get to where you are now. Right. Um, what's next? <laughs> Like, what are you doing now and what's next yeah. for you? Um, I think it changes every day. That's some of the fun is that it, it's uh, it's kind of like the military in that one day I'm doing one thing and the next day I'm doing something completely different. And that was one of the beautiful things about the military is that it, it was kind of varied day to day. But um, right now I, am, uh, I have my own company. It's just myself. I'm the sole proprietor where I... I have a mindfulness consulting company, it's McCaskill Consulting, where I bring mindfulness and meditation to corporate teams. And then I have partnered with uh, several other organizations under whom I do mindfulness and leadership training of some sort. Um, and and then I have a, a also I have my own podcast with a buddy of mine, Will Schneider, where we talk about mindfulness uh, for men because it is kind of a uh, it's got this stigma that surrounds meditation and mindfulness that a lot of men are opposed to practicing it uh, because of that stigma and we're working to break that stigma so we we do that uh weekly and uh and then the rest of the time i'm spending with my my beautiful family having having a good time with them out on the farm and and uh you know working to raise kids all right how old are those babies of yours <laughs> I've got a four-year-old little girl and a two-year-old little boy, and then uh, another little girl due in about seven weeks. What? Yeah. Two was not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> we gluttons for punishment, but we but, also love them to death. So. Oh, yeah. I think it was you, and I could be wrong on LinkedIn, see that picture of you in uniform holding that little baby. Is that you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's my first firstborn. That's my baby girl uh, in my helmet. She's at the time she she could fit in my combat helmet. Uh, I had seen a buddy of mine take a picture similar to that. So I I and and we had the same photographer take our you know the newborn photos. So I ended up taking a, had a, having a photo taken of me with my daughter in that helmet. And now you know she's like ten times the size of that thing, but but still back then she fit. And it's a beautiful picture because I think there's so much like symbolism in the picture. Yeah. Uh, the way that I look at it now is, is that 
military, it's a military uniform, military helmet, right? And then this newborn baby in my helmet, it's kind of a rebirth of myself in a way, having kids, my priorities shifted completely. Um, and then leaving the military was another rebirth of, of me and having to reinvent myself. So that's, that's why I put that picture on LinkedIn. Cause I think there's a lot of, a lot of symbolism in it. I like it. I'm just saying, and I'm not even a monster, so, like <laughs> um, man, I need to be like you, Michael. Know, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't, I need to be like me, whatever that is. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so, um, I think my last thing to close out with would be this. Um, for the people that are listening to this episode, whether they are still serving in the military, they're veterans and they've gotten out, or people who just don't really know much of anything about the military, what would you tell them? What What would your message to them be? Uh-oh, that's, I, I'm, that was a big one. Uh, uh, yeah, on I, I, <laughs> I, could, I could go on for a while with that one, but I, I think, um, you know, I started the show off saying that, uh, you know, I think the military the average military member has a higher level of grit than the average civilian, potentially. I've never done a study on that, but that's just my my gut instinct, right? But the other side of that coin is that we're still human beings. We still have emotions. We still have needs, desires, wants. Um, we, We have ups and downs, and we need support. so I, I think that's what I want to leave is that don't have this perception. One, don't have the perception that veterans are broken, but then at the same time, don't have this perception that veterans are uh, invincible. We're just like everyone else. We're human beings and we experience life just like other human beings. We may have seen and done some things that um, others haven't seen and done, but Ultimately, we all bleed when you cut us. We all hurt when you when you say something hurtful, um, and we all need support from from one another and from from others. So that's uh, I think that's the message I want to leave with you. Yeah, one the the tribe piece. Um, I think you have to be very intentional, right? It, when you're in the military, you've got that tribe automatically kind of provided to you. When, even when you PCS to a new area, you've automatically got the division, department, platoon, company, brigade, battalion, whatever. You've got that tribe that you're already a part of. And, and even within that tribe, there's even these smaller sub tribes that, you know, you become a part of. When you get out of the military, I think you have to be much more intentional about setting those tribes up. So getting out into community. If you're a person of faith, maybe finding a church that you can connect with people, uh, maybe finding a gym where you can connect with people, uh, finding some type of community group, volunteer group, nonprofit you can become a part of. That, I think, is is where you can develop those new tribes, because that's a big piece of when you get out of the military, you, you, you may feel that there's a loss of purpose, loss of mission, loss of identity and a loss of tribe. You kind of go through all four of those losses at the same time. Um, 
I think the tribe can be found if you're looking. You just got to look. Whereas in the military, you just kind of fall into a tribe. In, in, the, in the outside, you have to look. You have to be very intentional about looking. As far as um, having more to, to live for, um, I think that can also come with looking. And, you know, looking to see what is out there in your life already. A lot of the time when you do go down that dark path, you have these blinders on and you can't even see what it is you have to live for. I had lots to live for prior to. I had, uh, you know, I had a wife then, uh, my, my previous wife then. I had a good job. I had good friends. Uh, good, my, my, I've got three older sisters and a younger brother and parents that I adore. I had plenty to live for. Um, but I didn't see it because basically the, the, the blinders were on. So I think that's another thing is you have to look for that network. You have to look for that tribe, right? As you, as you get out, you have to actively do that. And then whether you're in the service still or out, if you're starting to have dark thoughts, try to, and I mean, this is, this is definitely easier said than done. Definitely. And I mean, I know because I've been there, but try to kind of open up the aperture. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing all this video, like as those people can see me right now. I mean, you're, you're the only one who can see me, but, uh, <laughs> but basically the, for, for the, those of who are listening, I'm, I'm doing like, I'm putting up blinders to my face and with my hands. And as you are having those dark thoughts, you need to peel those blinders back and see one, what you have to live for. And then two, who is there to support you? Who is there to support you? Who and what? I mean, there's organizations that are out there. There's the national suicide hotline. There's your friends, your family, your, your church, your gym, whoever. Um, so, I think that just peeling those blinders back some, you can see that there's a lot to live for and a lot of support. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things. One is, uh, yes, the, the mindfulness meditation absolutely helped in, in taking some time, taking a step back from the uniform and taking a look inside to who I am. Uh, I think that that helped. But I, I also w went through several programs um, that had um, aspects of their course where you take a long, hard look at who you are and what it is you want to do on the outside. So I went through a, a foundation called the Commit Foundation. They have a program called Pursue Your Purpose. And in Pursue Your Purpose, you read a book and you do the activities. Called The book is called Designing Your Life. It's got an associated workbook. And uh, I, I did a lot of the work that was in that. And I think that helped me to unpack who I was outside of uniform. And then, um, and then I went through the Honor Foundation and, uh, and did in, within the Honor Foundation, you do Simon Sinek's Find Your Why activity. And I think that helped me a lot to, uh, again, identify who I was outside of uniform. Um, and then, and then lastly, just, just talking with people who had been out of uniform for a while themselves or who had never put on a uniform, just sitting down and, and kind of picking their brains not, and not sitting there and asking them questions about, hey, what's it like in the civilian world? But just, ha just having a, a human conversation that has very little to do with the fact that I'm in the military. It's just, hey, 
I'm John, you're Tiffany. Hey, we're having this conversation. It has, uh, you know, and it's just about the coffee we're drinking or it's about some adventures we've been on or it's about some, some travel or whatever. And it just opens your eyes to the, the, the fact that there is so much more to life than, than just the identity you become when you, when you wear the uniform. Um, so I think that's that, yeah, the, the mindfulness meditation helped a lot. It did some deep introspective and uncomfortable work through that. Um, the counseling helped a lot, but I think all of it together really helped counseling, mindfulness meditation, and then these transition programs that helped me do pursue your purpose, find your why, those things that uh, I think helped me to identify who John McCaskill is and not Commander McCaskill. Yeah. (laughs) It's good work. I mean, there's there's a reason for it. It's really good. And I'll tell you where I am with that right now is that I'm at the part where, um, like, knowing what your values are, um, and I was like, okay, the Ari values, those are my values. (laughs) And then I'm looking at it, I'm like, it doesn't quite work like that, but I like that because it really is. Um, I think I, I like the fact that it's making, you know, it's making me question what's my why behind my what. You know, what's, yeah. what's, what's, why do I want to do this as a career? Why do I want to do that? Um, and I think that's really important that you neglect that. Like you say, okay, the Army's seven, the seven Army values are my values. Why? Well, because I'm in the Army and they're the Army values, therefore they're mine. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, but, that, <laughs> but now... I'm not in the army. Uh, I'm not in the military, so I have to, you know, figure out what is, what are my values and why are they my values. Now, how can I go out and implement those values in whatever it is I, you know, do for the rest of my life? Right, so, right. It, it really is good. It really is important. And I think, like any good thing, um, it takes work, and I have to participate in it instead of just being able to. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fine times. Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> no, it is. It's good. It's, it's worth it. it. It's worth it. it. If that's if that's what I do like about. It, I like I like the fact that it's forcing me to be introspective and look at myself and and question myself. Like, why do I believe this? You know, right. even, you know, even uh, being you know, I I would consider myself. Of, of faith, but I was even questioning that. Um, not in a not in a condemning way, but just questioning sure. why do I believe this as my faith? I think and, that's a good thing. That's a good question to ask. Yeah. Whatever faith you're in, yes, I think that's a good question to ask. Yeah, you know, not not just because I think what happens a lot of times is, well, I believe this because my parents believe this because their parents believe it. Right. Um, but. Yeah, that's one of the ball of us. So, but yeah, so I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's good stuff. So now, what what are you up to? What are you doing nowadays? Um, now, you know, you've, you've had to go through a lot of, um, you know, treatment therapy, and I don't say treatment or therapy as a, like, institutionalized type thing, but um, you've had to go through um, a lot of uh, self-care and fear from, from through other people um, to get to where you are now. Right. 
um, what's next? Yeah. Like, like, what are you doing now? And what's next? Yeah. Um, I think it changes every day. That's some of the fun is that it, it's, uh, it's kind of like the military in that one day I'm doing one thing and the next day I'm doing something completely different. And that was one of the beautiful things about the military is that it, it was kind of varied day to day. But um, right now I am, uh, I have my own company. It's just myself. I'm a sole proprietor where I, I have a mindfulness consulting company. It's McCaskill Consulting, where I bring mindfulness and meditation to corporate teams. And then I have partnered with uh, several other organizations under whom I do mindfulness and leadership training of some sort. Um, and and then I have a, a also I have my own podcast with a buddy of mine, Will Schneider, where we talk about mindfulness uh, for men because it is kind of a uh, it's got this stigma that surrounds meditation and mindfulness that a lot of men are opposed to practicing it uh, because of that stigma and we're working to break that stigma so we we do that uh weekly and uh and then the rest of the time i'm spending with my my beautiful family having having a good time with them out on the farm and and uh you know working to raise kids all right how old are those babies of yours <laughs> I've got a four-year-old little girl and a two-year-old little boy, and then uh, another little girl due in about seven weeks. What? Yeah. Two was not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> we glutton for punishment, but we uh, also love them to death. So. Oh, yeah. I think it was you, and I could go on LinkedIn and see that picture of you in uniform holding that little baby. Is that you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's my first firstborn. That's my baby girl uh, in my helmet. She's at the time she she could fit in my combat helmet. Uh, I had seen a buddy of mine take a picture similar to that. So I I and and we had the same photographer take our you know the newborn photos. So I ended up taking a, had a, having a photo taken of me with my daughter in that helmet. And now you know she's like ten times the size of that thing, but but still back then she fit. And it's a beautiful picture because I think there's so much like symbolism in the picture. Yeah. Uh, the way that I look at it now is is that military. It's a military uniform, military helmet, right? And then this newborn baby in my helmet. It's kind of a rebirth of myself in a way. Having kids, my priorities shifted completely, um, and then leaving the military was another rebirth. Of, of me and having to reinvent myself so that's that's why I put that picture on LinkedIn because I think there's a lot of a lot of symbolism in it I like it I'm just saying and I'm not even a so I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, man I need to be like you I grew up no I'm kidding I don't I need to be like me whatever that is there you go there you go <laughs> so um, I think my last thing to close out with would be this. Um, for the people that are listening to this episode, whether they are still serving in the military, they're veterans and they've gotten out, or people who just don't really know much of anything about the military, what would you tell them? What, what would your message to them be? Uh-oh, that's a, I, I'm, that was a big one. Uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I could... <laughs> I could go on for a while with that one, but I, I think, um, you know, I started the show off saying that, uh, you know, I think the military, 
the average military member has a higher level of grit than the average civilian, potentially. I, I've never done a study on that, but that's just my, my gut instinct, right? But the other side of that coin is that we're still human beings. We still have emotions. We still have needs, desires, wants. Um, we, we have ups and downs, and we need support. Um, so I, I think that's what I want to leave is that don't have this perception. One, don't have the perception that veterans are broken. But then at the same time, don't have this perception that veterans are uh, invincible. We're just like everyone else. We're human beings, and we experience life just like other human beings. We may have seen and done some things that um, others haven't seen and done, but ultimately, we all bleed when you cut us. We all hurt when you when you say something hurtful, um, and we all need support from from one another and from from others. So that's uh, I think that's the message I want to leave with you.